Our Old Testament reading for today is Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 52, 1 through 7. Our New Testament reading is Luke 8, 1 through 3. It's the same passage that we read last week. Uh, The last sermon was focused mainly upon verse 1. We will consider all of Luke 8, 1 through 3 uh, together today. The title of today's sermon is The Primacy and Power of Preaching. Would you hear now the reading of God's most holy word? Isaiah 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day... They shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Let us go now to Luke 8 and consider verses 1 through 3. Luke 8, starting in verse 1. Soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. As I prepared to preach through the Gospel of of Luke in general some time ago, I will be honest with you, I was not expecting to be so captivated by these first three verses of of Luke chapter 8. On the surface, this passage seems to be rather insignificant and plain. It almost seems to be nothing more than a transitional passage meant to provide us with a few details about the ministry of Christ so that we could move along with with the narrative in Luke. But as I meditated upon this text, two things grabbed my attention. First of all, the words, the good news of the kingdom of God stood out to me. Luke tells us that Christ went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. But he does not tell us what that message was. So we are left to wonder, what did he preach? What was the content of his message? What is this good news of the kingdom of God that Christ proclaimed? And as you know, or at least most of you know, in the previous sermon, I attempted to show you that the good news of the kingdom of God is the story of Scripture. To know what it is, we must start with Genesis 1 and to appreciate its fullness 
the fullness of the good news of the kingdom of of God, we must read all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. In brief, the good news of the kingdom of God is that though man has fallen into sin, rebelled against God the King, lost communion with his Maker, and has come now under his wrath and curse, being now liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. By the way, see Baptist Catechism 22, which I am now citing. God the King, this is the good news, has shown mercy and grace. He has sent a Savior, Christ the King, to defeat Satan, the usurper king, to overthrow his illegitimate kingdom of darkness, and to conquer sin and death. More than this, Christ the King has atoned for the sins of those given to him by the Father in eternity. This he did by dying on the cross in their place. And because Christ lived a sinless life, He has a righteousness to give to those who turn from their sins, to trust in Him as Lord and Savior. Christ clothes these with His righteousness. And and please hear this. Not only did Christ come to redeem a people for Himself, to reconcile them to God the Father, He also redeemed a place. Not only did Christ the King redeem a people, He also redeemed a place. Satan, the usurper king, the one who tempted Eve in the garden, and the one to whom Adam bowed the knee, is called in the Scriptures the ruler of this world. And it is so very important to recognize that Christ the King came to redeem even the world. He came to overthrow Satan and his illegitimate kingdom so as to take back what was rightfully God's. Where is this kingdom of Christ now? Where is it now? It is on earth. And who are the citizens of this kingdom? They are the descendants of of Adam, yes, born in sin, who have turned from their sins to trust in Christ the King, you see. So Christ has come to reconcile sinners to Himself, and He has come to take back a place, namely all of heaven and earth, to deliver it to God the Father, so that God is glorified in all things. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. It is that God has shown mercy to sinners. God has determined to redeem the heavens and the earth. He has determined to redeem a people for Himself, all who trust in Christ the Lord. Well, here is the second thing that captivated me as I meditated upon the first three verses of Luke 8. I was not only struck by the fact that Jesus came and delivered this message and and curious about what exactly this message was, the good news of the kingdom of God, but I'm also struck by the fact that Christ came to preach. I was struck by the primacy and power of preaching. Here in our text, we are told that Christ Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And this agrees with what we read in Luke 4.43. There we hear Christ say, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So do you hear Christ's words? He says, I was sent for the purpose of preaching. I was sent for the purpose of proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom. Furthermore, here in Luke 8, we are told that the twelve were with him. And who are these twelve? They are the twelve apostles that were named in Luke 6.12. What does the word apostle mean? Well, an apostle is a messenger or delegate. 
An apostle, as we will soon see, is one who is sent to proclaim a message. In fact, when we come to Luke 9.2, we read, And Jesus sent the twelve out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Lastly, in our text for today, we are told of a group of women who followed Jesus and accompanied the apostles. And what did these women do? The text says that they provided for them out of their means. In other words, they used their time, they used their treasures, they used their talents to support Christ and His apostles so that they might do what? Well, so that they might devote themselves to the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm simply wanting to draw your attention to the primacy and the power of preaching. When I speak of the primacy of preaching, I'm referring to the supreme importance of it. The word primacy means of greatest importance, preeminence, priority, or superiority. And here I am making the observation that preaching the good news of the kingdom of God was of supreme importance to Jesus. He himself said that he came for this purpose. He gathered 12 apostles to himself. They are delegates. They are messengers. And he trained them to preach this same gospel of the kingdom and to send them out. Others followed him too. In our text, women are mentioned. These believed in Christ and His message. They were transformed by Him, and these devoted themselves to support His ministry. They provided for Christ and His apostles so that they could do this most important work, so that they could proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Preaching the good news of the kingdom of God was clearly of primary importance to Christ and to His apostles. And it must be of primary importance to us as well, brothers and sisters. But the question I have is this, why? Why is preaching primary? I think this is a very good question. Why was preaching the message or telling this story of primary importance to Jesus? Stated differently, some might ask, couldn't Jesus have done better things with His time than to proclaim this message? For example, there must have been many poor and hungry people in these villages that Christ visited? Would it have not been a better use of time for Jesus to feed the poor? After all, Jesus demonstrated that He had the ability to take a very small amount of food and to multiply it greatly. Why not feed the poor, Jesus? Why not do this and treat this activity as primary? Why not say, I was sent for this purpose, to feed the hungry? Why spend your time and energy telling a story? And there must have been many who were sick in these villages. Why not make healing them of primary importance? Again, Jesus demonstrated that He had the ability to heal the sick. Indeed, He did heal many, but He does not identify healing as the reason for which He came, the purpose for which He came. He came for the purpose of preaching and when He healed the sick, it was to testify to the fact that His message was true. It was a demonstration of the fact that the kingdom of God had come with power, but He did not come for the purpose of healing the sick. Otherwise, He would have devoted Himself entirely to this. Does God heal? Could Christ heal? We say yes. But it was not Christ's purpose for coming. He came for this purpose, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom 
of God. Why not make this primary, Jesus? Why not heal the sick? Why spend time telling a story? Or given the fact that Israel was at that time occupied and oppressed by the Romans, why not gather an army of zealots and train them to fight, rather than training these twelve apostles to preach? Wouldn't it be more productive, Jesus, to fight with the sword against Rome and to overthrow the oppressors? Their foot was on the neck of the Jews. Why not cast them off, you see, with the sword? Jesus was not concerned with this. He preached the gospel of the kingdom, and He trained others to do the same. I could go on and on here. Certainly there were many uneducated people. Why not establish schools, Jesus? I'm sure there were many dysfunctional families. Why not counsel? We know that there was great corruption and injustice within the political class of both Israel and Rome. Why not seek to transform society through political reforms, Jesus? Why did you spend your time telling a story? Now, I'm quite sure that Jesus saw all this suffering and darkness within the world. Why then did He make preaching primary? Why did He say, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose? And why does Luke tell us that He went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with Him? The answer is that there is true power in this message. As good and as right as these other endeavors may be, they pale in comparison to the power of preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so never shall they be primary. They were not primary for Christ. They were not primary endeavors for the apostles. And never should they be the primary endeavors of the Christian church. But preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God shall always be primary. For there is power in the gospel of the kingdom. So let us consider now for a moment the power of of preaching. And of course, I am not here referring to the power of preaching in general, but to the power of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. For it is not the act of preaching that is powerful, but it is the content of the message that Christ and his apostles preached that has power. You see, the story that I've told you extensively in the previous sermon and very briefly in the introduction to this one regarding the accomplishment of our redemption and the establishment of the kingdom of God is powerful. This message, this story is life-changing. It is life-changing for the here and now and also for eternity. Indeed, it is through this message about the person of Christ and His finished work and the establishment of His eternal kingdom that men and women are forgiven, saved, and renewed. They come to be forgiven, saved, and renewed through the preaching or the proclamation of this message. And this is why Paul the Apostle says very famously in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I'd like to say a few things about this verse. I know we are in Luke 8, but I would like to say a few things about Romans 1.16 and this verse that I have just read. One, I want you to notice that the gospel that Paul preached is the same gospel that Jesus preached. There is no distinction between them, except for maybe perspective. Christ was still pointing forward to the arrival of the kingdom, and Paul was looking back upon it now that Christ had died and rose from the dead and ascended. 
But it is the same gospel. Gospel means good news. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God. His apostles were trained and commissioned to preach this same gospel. And Paul was called to preach this gospel too. The gospel of the kingdom of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel that the apostles preached. And the gospel of the apostles is the gospel that Paul preached, for he was an apostle of Jesus too, having been commissioned by him personally. Uh, Commissioned, that is, by the risen Lord. Two, when Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, I think he acknowledges that it is possible to be tempted to be ashamed of it. Are you following me here? Were it not tempting to be ashamed of the gospel of the kingdom of God, then I do not think Paul would have written the words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Was Paul tempted to be ashamed of the gospel of the kingdom of God? Perhaps he was. Think of all the ridicule and mistreatment he endured as an apostle of Christ, a herald of this message of good news. And there might have been times when Paul, even Paul, was tempted to pull back and to alter his course. But having considered all things carefully, and according to the truth of Scripture, he remained resolved. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. One of the reasons that Christians are sometimes ashamed of the gospel or tempted to be ashamed of the gospel of the kingdom of God is that others do not see the point of it, and so they ridicule it. The story of salvation through faith in a crucified and risen Savior seems like foolishness to them. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross, that is another way of talking about the gospel of the kingdom, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So then, for those who are dead in their sins, who have no spiritual light or life in them, the message of salvation through the cross of Christ sounds like foolishness. But to those who have been given the gift of faith, To those who have been graciously given eyes to see and ears to hear, this message of redemption through the crucified and risen Christ, it, it sounds to them like the power of God. And this brings us back to Romans 1.16, where Paul says something very similar. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Why was Paul not ashamed to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and of Christ, the crucified and risen King? It was because he was convinced that it it was the power of God unto salvation. This message, this gospel message, this good news has the power to save. So, brothers and sisters, please know that it is not the act of preaching that is powerful. A preacher may preach with great eloquence. A preacher may preach with great oratorical skill, but if the message he proclaims is not the true gospel of the kingdom of God, then his message will have no power to save. And conversely, a preacher may lack eloquence and skill, but if the message he proclaims is the true gospel of the kingdom of God, then his preaching will have the power to save. You see, it is not the preacher or the act of preaching that has power But it is the message. It is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the message of the good news of the kingdom of God. Again, hear Paul, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, 
That is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So why does the good news of the kingdom of God have such power? Have you ever wondered this? Why does this story, why does this message have such power, yes, even the power to save sinners from hell? Well, first of all, the gospel of the kingdom is powerful because it is true. The gospel of the kingdom tells us the truth about God and the world He has made. The gospel of the kingdom tells us the truth about our sin and misery now that man has fallen into sin. The gospel of the kingdom also tells us the truth about the grace of God, the Savior He has provided, Christ the Lord, and the victory He has won. The gospel of the kingdom tells us the truth about the eternal reward that Christ has earned. So the gospel of the kingdom of God is a story, but it is a true story. It is the story about God, creation, man, sin, salvation in Christ Jesus, and the consummation of all things at the end of time. It is the story that is told in the Bible from Genesis 1 through to the end of Revelation. It is the story of the kingdom of God, the kingdom offered, promised, prefigured, inaugurated, and consummated. And I am here simply observing that the story is powerful because the story is true. And truth is powerful, isn't it? Or at least it has the potential to be if it is believed and obeyed. The truth has the potential to free us to live according to reality. Lies lead only to division, darkness, and death, but truth sets people free. This is true of truth in general, but it is especially true when it comes to the truth of the gospel. And this is why Christ spoke to the Jews who had believed in Him, saying, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is powerful. It sets people free to live according to what really is. And I think it is so very sad to think that many people live their entire lives according to a lie. They have believed the lie, perhaps, that God does not exist Maybe it is the lie that there are many gods or that there is only one, but that He is all love and that there will never be judgment for any because we are right with Him. We have no need for a Savior, therefore. We could pile up many examples of lies that people live by. But these lies, these that I have mentioned and many others, they bind people in darkness. They are lies that lead straight to hell. But the gospel of the kingdom of God is true. It is the one that is taught from Genesis 1 through to the end of Revelation. It is a true story that is told here. And the truth has the power to set men and women free. Secondly, the gospel of the kingdom is powerful, not only because it is true, but because it is through this message that we come to be united to Christ the Savior and to have Him as King. And this principle, brothers and sisters, is so very important. I hope that you grasp it. The gospel is powerful not only because it is true, but it is powerful because it is through this message that we come to be united to Christ the Savior and to have Him as King, really and truly united to Him. Brothers and sisters, I want you to allow me to make a very important distinction. It is a fine distinction, but I think it is a very important one. Please listen to this. We are saved from our sins. We are given eternal life. 
not by believing in the gospel message per se, but by trusting the person of Jesus Christ and the work that He has done for us as He is offered to us in the gospel. I warned you, this is a fine distinction, but I think it is an important one. We are saved from our sins. We are We are given eternal life. We are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Not by believing this story per se, but by trusting in the person, the person of Jesus Christ, His person, and in the work He has done for us as He is offered to us in this gospel story. It is a fine distinction, I know. But it's an important one. It is not the gospel message that saves us. It is Jesus who saves. And we come to be saved as we trust in Him as He is offered to us in the gospel. Stated yet another way, the gospel is powerful, not because it is a powerful or moving story, but because the person of Jesus Christ is introduced to us and offered to us in the gospel. You've heard me talk about how much I love our catechism. And one of the things I love about our catechism is its precision. I want you to listen to Baptist Catechism questions 90 and 91. The gospel is preached in these questions. Question 90 asks, What does God require of us that we may escape His wrath and curse due to us for sin? If I were to put this into simpler terms, the question is, What must we do to be saved? The answer that is given is this, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. So how do we come to be saved? Well, Baptist Catechism 90 is right to say that it is through faith in what or in whom? Jesus Christ, in His person, and in the work that He has done for us. We are to place our faith in Jesus Christ, the King, for He has won the victory, you see. Now listen to question 91. It asks, what is faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is wonderful. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, it says. That means it is a gift. Whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone. For salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. What did you notice about Baptist Catechism 91? I really do hope you caught it. It is there reiterated and further emphasized that we are saved by the grace of God alone and through faith in Christ alone. In fact, it is said that by faith we receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation. You see, To be saved, we must receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. We must receive Him as our mediator. We must receive Him as our covenant head. We must receive Christ as our King, if we wish to be citizens in His eternal kingdom. And to receive Christ is to rest in Him. I do love these words, receive and rest. They remind us that this salvation that we have in Christ Jesus is a a gift. It is a gift. These words, receive and rest, help very much to clarify what it means to have faith in Christ. The word receive reminds us that Christ and the salvation offered to us through Him is a gift from God. 
You do not earn Christ, friends. You do not earn Him. You receive Him by faith. And the word rest communicates that to have Christ as Lord and Savior, one must fall humbly and helplessly into His loving arms. Friends, you do not work your way to Christ. You rest in Him by faith. Do you see the distinction? But the point that I really wish to make here is that we are saved by the person of Jesus Christ. It is not the gospel per se that saves us, but it is the person who saves us. The person who is offered to us in the gospel. It is through the gospel. It is through the message of the good news of the kingdom of God that Christ is offered to sinners. That is what Baptist Catechism 91 says so beautifully. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Again, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation as Jesus is offered to us in the gospel. It is through the gospel, it is through the good news of the kingdom of God that Christ, His apostles, and the true church in every age proclaims that men and women and boys and girls come to trust in the person of Jesus Christ and in the work that He has done for sinners unto salvation. Stated in one more way, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not because the gospel message in and of itself saves, but because Jesus saves. And it is Jesus who is offered to sinners in the preaching of the gospel. You might be thinking that this distinction is too fine, but it's not. It is not too fine. I do wonder how many people have been brought up in the church, hearing the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God, and even thinking, yes, this message is true. What a beautiful story it is. You know? It's a beautiful story of redemption. How moving it is, etc. But never have they placed their faith in Christ. In other words, they have heard and even agreed with sound doctrine, the sound doctrine that is taught, but never have they received the gift of Jesus, the gift of Christ. Never have they received Him and rested upon Him. Never have they humbly and helplessly fallen into the strong and loving arms of King Jesus. You've probably heard it said that true Christianity is not about doctrine. It's about a relationship. Have you heard this? That statement is half true. True Christianity is about a relationship. It is about sinners being reconciled to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through a personal relationship with Jesus the Messiah, with Jesus the King, the Son of God incarnate. That is true. But how do we come to know this Jesus? How do we come to be introduced to Him? How do we come to be united to Him by faith? It is through preaching. It is through the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God. That is what doctrine or teaching is. It is through preaching and teaching that we come to be united to Christ by faith, For it is in the gospel that Christ Jesus, our King, is offered to us. So then, the gospel of the kingdom of God is powerful because it is true. And it is powerful because it is through the gospel that Christ, His person and finished work, are offered to us. Thirdly, the gospel of the kingdom of God is powerful because through it we are united to Christ by faith and come to have all of the benefits of the redemption that He has accomplished for us. As our own. This good news of the kingdom of God will change your life now and for eternity if it is believed. 
And of course, I mean that your life will be changed now and for eternity if you believe upon King Jesus who is offered to us in the gospel. And no, I am not merely talking about some kind of superficial, momentary, or earthly change. I'm talking about deep, spiritual, and everlasting change, real change in the heart and in the mind, real change as it pertains to your relationship to God. For example, I have no doubt that if you are a drunkard now, Christ can and will change your life if you come to Him by faith. He will free you from bondage to that sin. I have no doubt that if your marriage is on the verge of disaster, Christ can change that. But please hear me, Christ did not lay down His life, rise again on the third day, ascend to the Father and sit down on His throne to merely set you free from drunkenness and to bless you with a better marriage. No, those who come to Christ to receive and rest in Him as He has offered to us in the Gospel are blessed in Him with blessings far deeper than these. Those who come to Christ to receive and rest in Him as He has offered to us in the Gospel come because they have been given spiritual life through the preaching of the Gospel and by the working of the Holy Spirit. They have been given eyes to see and ears to hear. They've been given new life, and so they come to Jesus to receive and rest in Him. This is what Jesus meant when He spoke to Nicodemus, as recorded in John 3.3, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And a bit later He said, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God will be received by those who are called and regenerated by the Spirit. This is the kind of change I'm talking about. Not just you being able to live a slightly better life, you see, but regeneration of the inner man. Indeed, the parable of the sower that follows the passage we are now considering in Luke 8 makes the same point, but in a different way. Christ did not come to give you a better life now, friends. He came to redeem a people for Himself. He came to thoroughly renew them and to bring them from a state of sin and death to a state of life, you see. And what blessings do those who trust in Christ as He has offered to us in the Gospel receive? Well, they are justified by God. This means that their sins are pardoned or forgiven. They are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This means that Christ's righteousness is given to them as a gift, as if it were their own. They are adopted into God's family. They were by nature children of wrath and at enmity with God, but through faith in Christ they are adopted into the family of God. This means they are now at peace with God, for God has set His love upon them. He loves them as His beloved children. Those who trust in Christ are also set free from bondage to sin. They are transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. They have a new king, therefore. He is Christ the Lord. They have a new identity, a new name, a new nature. Their minds are renewed. So too are their affections and their wills. If united to Christ by faith... The drunkard will not continue in his drunkenness, and the abuser will not continue in his abuse. Why, though? Why? Because Christ has cleaned up their lives a bit. No. They will see this radical change in their life because in Christ Jesus they are a new creation. And friends, that is the thing that Christ has earned through His life, death, and resurrection. Christ has earned a new creation. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. 
The question is, how do we come to have these new covenant and new creation blessings as our own? It is through faith in the person and work of Christ as He is offered to us in the preaching of the gospel. And this is why we agree with the apostle who said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is why we agree with Christ and His apostles that preaching the gospel of the kingdom, as foolish as it may seem to those who are perishing, is of primary importance. The gospel is to be kept primary because of the great power that it has to save. I'd like to move this sermon to a conclusion by considering some possible application of this text. First of all, brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ must be resolved to keep the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God primary. The church must be resolved to keep the, gospel, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God primary. Yes, pastors and elders have a special role to play in this, but the members of Christ's church must also be resolved and see to it that the preaching of the gospel is kept primary. To be clear, this does not mean that every sermon preached must be like the one that was preached last Sunday. A sweeping overview of the gospel of the kingdom from Genesis through Revelation. And neither does it mean that every sermon must focus exclusively on the themes of redemption or atonement or faith and repentance. There are many things that ministers of the word must address in their preaching. For there are many things that the scriptures address. And there are many things that concern the people of God as they sojourn in this world. Preaching should be well-rounded and varied, touching upon many different heads of doctrine and addressing the many concerns faced by the people of God today. But please hear me, no matter what topic or concern is addressed from this pulpit, it must be centered upon Christ and the gospel of His kingdom. You've probably heard me say that all theology hangs together. It does. What I mean by this is, all of the doctrines of the Christian faith are connected and they are intertwined so that if you pull on this thread over here, it's going to affect that thread over there. All doctrine, all of Christian theology hangs together. But I should probably also say that at the very heart of Christian doctrine is the glory of the triune God. It has this as its aim, the glory of the triune God, and it is centered upon Christ and the redemption He has accomplished for His people. Your growth in holiness, your victory over sin, the health of your marriage, your approach in parenting, struggles in your emotional life, your confidence or assurance before God or your lack thereof, whatever the topic or concern may be, I am saying to you that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of His kingdom is central. It is central. In all of these things, Paul the Apostle, for example, addressed many of these concerns in his letters, and yet he said, we preach Christ crucified. That is 1 Corinthians 1.23. This is what we do, Paul says. 
We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ risen. We preach the cross of Christ. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we do. Did Paul mean by this that the only thing he ever did was walk around and tell a simple gospel message centering upon the cross? No. He preached the gospel of the kingdom, but he also, as you know from his letters, teased out the implications of this gospel and applied them to the people of God and to the many circumstances that they face. Also in Colossians 1.28, he said, Christ we proclaim. This is what we do. We proclaim Christ. And then he said, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So did you hear it there in Colossians 1.28? Ministers must not only preach Christ in an evangelistic way, urging men and women, boys and girls, to turn from their sins and to trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. Ministers must also preach Christ and the gospel of His kingdom to those who have already believed, drawing out its many implications, so as to present those under their care unto God mature in Christ. The gospel of the kingdom does not only save sinners, brothers and sisters, it sanctifies saints as the Spirit works as well. And so the gospel must be preached in, in this varied way, focused intensely upon the cross of Christ, of course, His death, burial, and resurrection. But this good news of the kingdom of God has many implications. In fact, it touches upon every aspect of our lives today. And we must see it. We must live according to this gospel. Members of Christ's church must desire to have the good news of the kingdom of Christ proclaimed. They must insist that the preaching of Christ be kept primary, given its power to save and to sanctify. And they must also support the preaching ministry of the church with their time, treasures, and talents. And this is my second suggestion for application. We see this principle in our text for today, don't we? Jesus Christ went from town to town preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with Him. They were being trained to do the same. And soon they would be sent out to preach this message and there were women who accompanied Christ and His apostles. What did they do? The text says that they provided for them out of their means. And their ministry of service, I want you to see this, was vital. I'm just trying to picture the scene here. Christ, His apostles, and many women. And, and you'll notice something about these women. They were, they were set free by Christ. They were touched by Him. They believed upon Him, you see. One was freed from demon possession. Another had been healed. In other words, the power of the kingdom of Christ had come upon them and had affected them. And what then did they do? They took their time. They took their treasures. They took their talents. And they saw to it that Christ and His apostles would be supported as they went about preaching the gospel ministry. I do see here a picture of, of the church of Jesus Christ in its state of infancy, you see. Not all are called to the ministry of the Word, brothers and sisters. In fact, most within the church are called to serve and support the ministry of the Word. This is not the time for a thorough teaching on the doctrine of spiritual gifts, but for now it will suffice to say that these gifts of support and service are of vital importance in Christ's church. Let me say it again. These gifts of support and service are of vital importance in Christ's church. It is vitally important, brothers and sisters, that you serve one another under the leadership of the deacons. 
It is important that you use the gifts that God has given to you, whatever they may be, for the building up of the body of Christ. It is important that you work and give so that the teaching ministries of the church might be sustained and even expanded. As Galatians 6.6 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And brothers and sisters, this is how Christ's kingdom will be advanced. It will be advanced through the preaching and teaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Men must be appointed to preach. Some will need to be sent out to preach, even to the ends of the earth, and these will need to be supported. 1 Peter 4, 10-11, I think, will be a very good text for us to conclude with. For in it, both speaking gifts and service gifts are mentioned. And you will notice that the conclusion of this passage is very much about Christ and His kingdom. Listen, to now, listen now to what Peter had to say about this, and with this we will close. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that, everything, in the, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank You that Your kingdom is here and that Christ is our King. We thank You that we have been rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light if we have faith in the crucified and risen Messiah. And we pray for the advancement of Your kingdom on earth, O God. We pray that the gospel would be preached faithfully from this pulpit and from pulpits all over this land. We pray for the establishment of more churches in this land and to the ends of the earth, O God. I pray, O Lord, that you would stir up the members of your churches to support the preaching ministries of their churches, O God. I pray that your churches would flourish and that your kingdom would advance. Lord, help us to see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to see and to know for certain that by the preaching of the gospel, men and women are saved from the fires of hell. Help us to see that through the preaching of the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ, men and women are rescued out of Satan's dark kingdom of death and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ the King, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of love. O oh Lord, stir us up to preach the gospel of the kingdom. In Christ's name we pray.